ask, we listen. This is Brew It, Pour It, Sip It, a Monday early afternoon-ish. It's a pick-me-up. It's a pick-me-up, yeah. It's Brew It, Pour It, Sip It. It is a segment all about coffee. You guys asked, we answered. You're like, we want to talk about coffee more often, so here we are. I am digging in deep to try to find all of your coffee topics And a lot of you have texted in and asked about decaf. You guys need to talk about decaf, talk about decaf, talk about caffeine, all of that. So I think I found the most expertest expert, if that's a word, on decaf, and that is Dr. Joe Schwartz. He's the director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to KFGO Radio. Well, thanks very much. Uh, maybe you've given me a bit too much credit as the expert of experts. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, chemistry allows us to look at a lot of uh, consumer products and uh, learn about their history and evaluate their use. And uh, coffee, of course, falls into that uh, category. Well, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about the history of decaf because I understand that decaf has some association with Nazis. Well, I I guess uh, it could be it's pushing it a little bit. It does have an association with Goethe, who was a German poet and, uh, you know, who who was, uh, I I guess, revered by the Nazis. But um, this connection predates the the Nazis, really. Uh, Goethe had an interesting relationship with a chemist called Friedrich Runge. And uh, this goes back to the, you know, the 1800s. And uh, Runge had established himself as, you know, a pretty famous chemist at that time by carrying out an experiment in which he extracted the belladonna plant. Belladonna, incidentally, comes from the Latin meaning beautiful woman, because ancient Romans used to put an extract of this plant into their eye to dilate the pupil, and that was deemed to make them more beautiful. And anyway, it was Runge who had actually isolated the the active chemical, which we now know uh, to be uh, atropine. And uh, he was a friend of of Goethe, and Goethe was very interested in in, uh, what Runge was doing, including putting drops of this uh, extract into the eye of a cat to show the the dilation of the pupils. And uh, Goethe had been given a a gift of uh, coffee by a Greek friend, and uh, had discovered that it would keep him awake. And he wondered why this was, and he gave a sample of this to his friend uh, Runge to see if it could be analyzed to see what this ingredient was that kept him awake. And that led to Runge eventually isolating caffeine as this specific ingredient. Uh, uh, Caffeine falls into a category of molecules we call alkaloids, which are nitrogen-containing compounds that have some physiological activity. And the plant world is full of these alkaloids. Morphine would be an example. Nicotine is another example. So uh, that's uh, how Runge uh, got interested uh, in this. And uh, once he had identified caffeine as the ingredient that keeps people awake, uh, obviously there were efforts made to remove this uh, ingredient for people who were bothered by, you know, the uh, effects of caffeine in terms of uh, creating jitteriness and and keeping them awake. And the the first attempt to remove caffeine 
uh, used a solvent called benzene. And basically, they would soak the coffee beans in benzene because benzene is a very good solvent for caffeine. And the hope was that it would preferentially remove caffeine and leave other components behind. And actually, that was a, a pretty good method. Uh, but they didn't realize at that time that uh, benzene was pretty nasty chemical. Uh, today, we know it as a carcinogen, a cancer-causing agent. But in the early days, it did serve that purpose because it, it was able to solubilize caffeine and leave behind a lot of the flavor components in the coffee. Uh, but uh, when it became apparent that uh, benzene was toxic, uh, other methods were looked at in order to try to remove the, the caffeine. And today, there are several methods that are in use. And um, they're, effectively, they can remove about 99.9% .9 of the caffeine from coffee, although in North America, the requirement uh, for decaffeination is that 97% of the caffeine be removed. And that leaves behind a very small amount of, of caffeine, uh, generally not enough to cause any effect in, uh, in most people. And uh, there, there are a number of processes that are, are used today to, to remove the caffeine. The um, benzene has been replaced by either methylene chloride or preferentially ethyl acetate. And uh, these are both solvents that, that can preferentially uh, remove the uh, caffeine from the coffee beans. And because they evaporate quite easily, uh, the uh, residue is really insignificant that is left behind in decaffeinated coffee. But there are other methods that are used as well that don't require any of these organic solvents. Uh, there's a so-called Swiss water process <clears throat> which heats up uh, green coffee beans and uh, uh, passes the extract to through uh, a filter of activated carbon that absorbs the caffeine, and then the leftover uh, flavor compounds are put back into the beans. And that is a, yet another method that uses what we call uh, supercritical carbon dioxide. Uh, carbon dioxide is a gas, but when it is compressed, uh, it becomes uh, uh, sort of a, a commodity between a gas and a liquid. And when that is pushed to coffee beans, this also extracts the caffeine. And this is a pretty safe process because, of course, the uh, carbon dioxide after can be just evaporated and uh, goes into the uh, atmosphere. So those are the processes that are used today to remove the, the caffeine. And uh, the uh, final taste unfortunately, is never really the same as from uh, you know, uh, coffee that is brewed from roasted coffee beans, because no matter what method you use, some of the flavor compounds are also removed along with the caffeine. But uh, the uh, methods have been improved over the years, so that uh, most people who turn to decaffeinated coffee are satisfied with the flavor of the coffee. But of course, you you don't get the sort of uh, mini high that you get from the caffeine. Mm -hmm. Dr. Joe Schwartz is with us, director at McGill University's Office for Science and Society. We're talking all about the process of decaffeinating coffee. Now, what I understand from what you just said is that there's almost three different processes to, do, to decaffeinate coffee. Is that right? 
three? Yes, that's correct. And, that's three. Yeah. And if you were looking for the, because I think a lot of people are concerned about the chemicals that we use to decaffeinate coffee. Of course, I know like that ethyl isotate that you mentioned when you first started talking about it. Um, that is natural in a sense, but it's not natural when you decaffeinate coffee because, of course, it's you know it's used in large well, amounts. Well, yeah, it's, that's that's actually a very interesting story. The story of ethyl acetate. Uh, ethyl acetate is indeed a naturally occurring substance. It's found in many fruits and and vegetables, uh, but it can also be uh, synthesized in the lab on a very large scale. So uh, when they use ethyl acetate to decaffeinate coffee, they don't extract the ethyl acetate from apples or pears, you know, uh, to uh, use in the decaffeination process. <laughs> right. it's, made in, it's made in the laboratory. However, it's very important to understand that that ethyl acetate, whether it's extracted from, from vegetables or fruits or is made in the laboratory, that is irrelevant. Ethyl acetate is what it is, no matter what sure. the origin is. Sure. So, uh, but this this allows uh, that process to be sort of termed a natural decaffeination process because ethyl acetate does occur in nature. But the ethyl acetate used is made in the lab, but that really has has no relevance. And the and that whole is, that's a whole other segment with you someday, Doctor Schwartz, is like the yeah. use of the word natural in food products or or edible products. The word natural right. and how industry uses it yeah. is a little bit misleading at oh, times. Yeah. Mis misuses it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So there's there's that process which I think is probably the most common is what I'm gathering. Of course, the Swiss water process, which you see a lot of bags of coffee beans label it as. And then um, what is the third one? What is that? What do you look for on a label when you talk about that super critical carbon the dioxide? Super, super critical carbon dioxide. Uh, they, they do not have to, by law, list on the label what process was used for the decaffeination. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, the only thing they have to say is that it is decaffeinated and, and uh, you know, that there's no residue of, uh, of caffeine. Now, normally, uh, the um, manufacturer would say something because they look at the carbon dioxide process as being a positive in terms of consumer acceptance. You know, because carbon mm -hmm. dioxide is, is certainly it does not have the air of toxicity about it, right? Uh, so they would mention that. But the uh, Swiss water process is uh, almost always mentioned uh, when the, uh, the product is sold because, of course, water is seen to be a totally benign uh, commodity. But they don't have to mention how uh, it was decaffeinated. So the decaffeination process, when you really break it down, is really just brewing the coffee beans once or twice before we get them. Like you're brewing them because you're using a, a water and this other soluble for the caffeine and you're you're emerging them in hot water. You're brewing the coffee, taking the caffeine out, putting the coffee beans back in water again, essentially brewing them to get the taste back into them and then bringing it to the consumer. Like they're brewed twice before we get them. Is that right? Yes, that, that is essentially correct. Although, you know, the, the processes are somewhat complicated. You know, obviously when you're manufacturing something on such a large scale, there's a lot of 
chemical engineering that is involved. But that basically is, is, the, uh, is the process. Now, the, uh, the worry that some people have, although I think that there's no need to, to have that worry, is that if a solvent is used, whether it be methylene chloride or ethyl acetate, that they are worried about some of this residue being left in the coffee. Mm-hmm. But there isn't any because these are very volatile and uh, the heating that the beans undergo before they are you know, processed and packaged uh, will drive off the, uh, uh, res- any residue that is there. So I, I really don't think that there's any concern about uh, decaf coffee. Okay. Now, uh, Dr. Joe Schwartz has been with us. We're talking all about the science of decaffeinating coffee. It's brew it, pour it, sip it here, and it takes two. I have to ask, because I watched some of your videos before our interview, and um, I even said to you off the air before we came on the air something about having my ducks in a row, and you said, I have a lot of ducks. And I said, I actually meant to ask you that on air. What is up with all the rubber ducks in your office? Is there a story? Oh, of course there is. Um, Basically, our office, the McGill Office for Science and Society, has the mandate to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth, and to fight quackery. And uh, because I've, you know, I've sort of forced a career on on doing that, on debunking nonsense and and, uh, fighting quackery, uh, about uh, 20 years ago, I kind of got interested in ducks because they quack. So to me, they represent quackery. And uh, I started to collect them just for fun and, you know, put some in in my office to kind of remind me of the importance of fighting quackery. And uh, then uh, people heard about this and then they started sending me ducks and, uh, (laughs) you know, then... Yeah, it, it kind of got a bit out of hand. I feel and, like uh, we need to find a Fargo, um, a Fargo-specific duck to send you to to uh, enter into your collection. Now I have you a. Know what I, I I wouldn't be surprised if one exists because, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, duck collecting bizarrely has has become a hobby for many many people, and there are these duck stores, and you know all major cities. Uh, actually, we have one in, in, in Montreal. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some sort of uh, specific duck because there really are thousands of them uh, out there. Oh, my gosh. How funny. I love it. Well, um, Dr. Joe Schwartz, thank you and to all your ducks for joining us today on It Takes Two. We appreciate it. We appreciate all the sciencey stuff that you can bring to this segment because I sure can't. But we appreciate all the education today. Thanks for being with us on It Takes Two. Thanks very much. Perfect. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All podcasts.